got two seriously distinguished members of the legal community who are with us today to have a discussion. First, we have Robert Spano. Robert is now a partner in Gibson Dunn. He was, for almost 10 years, a judge at the European Court of Human Rights, and for the last two years, two difficult but successful years for the European Court of Human Rights, the president of that court. There are very, very few people who are involved in law in the United Kingdom who know more about the Human Rights Act and, what's more, the Convention on Human Rights and what its practical effect is. So we're very lucky to have Robert here today to talk about human rights. Could I just say, and this is, you'll understand, not a party political point, there is some prospect, I only put it that way, that Labour might win the next election, <laughs> or possibly anyway that the Conservatives will not be in power after the election. I'm not making a prediction, but I simply say once that is a possibility, then rather than thinking about what changes might be made to the Human Rights Act in the UK or our relationship with Europe, it may be that most sensible lawyers and maybe most sensible clients are thinking, how do we deal with the existing legal landscape rather than hope that Dominic Raab may return and all may be well, because I don't think that he is. With <laughs> Robert today is Joshua Rosenberg, who, since law began in this country, has been commenting on it. He, I think, is regarded as the best informed legal commentator in the United Kingdom. When I was the Lord Chancellor, I was always incredibly irritated that he appeared to have a better connection both with the judges, the lawyers, and my own department as to what was going on. So when I would speak to him, he'd always say, I understand that you're planning this. I would think, I don't think I'm planning this. Well, what about this document? And it would immediately emerge that I was indeed planning it. So Robert, is, uh, Robert and Joshua are going to be in discussion. I'm going to hand over to them, and I think we will have a jolly interesting evening. Joshua, over to you. Thank you very much, Charlie. Um, Robert, uh, you were just 50 when you retired nearly a year ago as President of the European Court of Human Rights. What does, what does somebody in your position do next? Gibson Dunn. <laughs> no, it's a good question because um, behind the decision to move into private practice, uh, there was a lot of contemplation. It was not an easy move. Uh, as the colleagues in the room from, from Gibson Dunn that have helped me in these first few months know well, for someone that had spent 27, 8 years in, in public service, uh, professor, uh, practitioner at a national level and a judge, never had clients, it was not an easy decision uh, to make. But I think it was a good decision, and I think the main reason is um, the landscape now, in particular in Europe, uh, for those of us... Uh, in the industry, uh, working towards, you know, servicing big clients that are having to grapple with a lot of issues which are at the intersection of classical, traditional, commercial company law and the public sector law, which is human. So I thought it was uh, a good moment to, to, to make that change, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have done that. I want to take you back to June last year. Boris Johnson, remember him? He was Prime Minister and Priti Patel was Home Secretary. And she'd signed a deal under which asylum seekers uh, would have their claims decided in Rwanda. Their lawyers challenged the policy. Uh, that challenge still hasn't been resolved. There's a hearing in the Supreme Court next month. Uh, but um, uh, what the courts here dealt with very quickly was what should happen to the claimants uh, in the meantime. The High Court refused to grant interim injunctions. Uh, so did the Court of Appeal, so did the Supreme Court. And the first flight was ready to take off. But lawyers for an Iraqi national then asked your court for what are called interim measures under the court's Rule 39. A single unnamed judge told the UK government on the 14th of June last year that the applicant should not be removed until three weeks after the final ruling from the courts of the United Kingdom. 
Uh, my question's not all going to be that long, but I just wanted to sort of set the scene. Um, let's start with how the Human Rights Court deals with urgent applications like this. Just tell me about the practicalities. Is there always a judge on duty to consider them? Does the government have a say? So just to start off with uh, a housekeeping, there's gonna be technicalities during this conversation. So I'm not gonna give an introduction about the European Court of Human Rights, the convention. Uh, I assume that most, if not all of you in the room, have, have sort of the basic understanding of these issues. So we're gonna really talk about some granular legal detail. The answer to that is yes. So the European Court of Human Rights has to deal with interim requests which are uh, submitted to the court from 46, now 46 member states. It's approximately two to 3,000 of these every year. So we have a system, and, and excuse me, I say still we. It'll take me more time to stop saying we. Uh, you, met, you said your court. Well, it's, it's our court. Uh, uh, so the court has a system in which the president of the court uh, appoints senior judges, which are vice presidents of sections, to act as duty judges because interim measures can come to the court 24-7. Uh, usually, almost always, they deal with urgent executive measures about deportation, expulsion, like in the Rwanda case. So the answer is yes. We have a single judge, a duty judge, that in the normal course of events will decide these requests on the papers. Now, they can be escalated in the court. Um, for example, we have a practice where interim measures lodged by states against states are decided initially by the president of the court. So, for example, the first interim measure um, indicated by the court against the Russian Federation after the invasion of Ukraine was decided by myself. That goes back to, it's an old practice, goes back to uh, the, the presidency of Jean-Paul Costa in 2009 when he was the first president to indicate an interim measure when Russia invaded Georgia. But we can also have chambers of seven judges seized when there are um, issues of high significance. And there is time. Often, for example, interim measures have been lodged for the purposes of requiring government to assist a person who is on a hunger strike. So there, for example, time is, you know, there are a few days, and, and then that may actually be dealt with not by the duty judge, but by a chamber. But in this case, and which is the normal course of events, the duty judge will take the, the, the application and will decide them on the papers after having consulted the national judge. That is what happened in this case. That's what happened in most of these cases. And this is based on, as you mentioned, Joshua, Rule 39 of the Rules of Court. And what, what does the duty judge ask the national judge? Why is the national judge consulted? So this is a practice simply to, to, be, to have insights into potential issues of national law, which the duty judge will not be because the, a judge will never decide an interim measure from his, his or her nation state cannot do that. So there will always be a duty judge from another state. And the, con the con consultation will be if the duty judge needs some information to understand uh, the national law in play in the case. This was referred to yesterday by the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, Lord Burnett of Malden. And what he said was those who exercise the judicial power of the state should not do so in secret. Uh, this was in a speech to the Commonwealth uh, Judges and Magistrates Association in Cardiff, and what Lord Burnett said was not naming the judge was alien to the common law tradition. Uh, are there any plans at the Human Rights Court to make this more open, or, or is it, as he also suggested, something um, which is uh, perfectly normal in the continental tradition, the civil law tradition, which he thought was moving towards greater anonymity for parties, if not actually judges? So let me, t let the, those are two questions. Let me unpack them with going to the second question first, which is uh, the criticism leveled at the court last summer uh, from a Nordic law perspective, from where I come from, is perfectly understandable. Uh, I, I do agree with the main idea expressed by Lord Burnett. Of course I do. We have to understand, however, that the European Convention on Human Rights is composed of 46 member states with varying traditions. And let me explain why we've had a system 
where the vice president's sections, and that's on the website, you will always know that it's one of three or four judges. They, we have an asterisk with the vice president. We all know those are the duty judges, but you will not know which of them took the decision. Now, why is that? That is because in some systems, judges that indicate interim measures, or are, which often are in a very precarious situation, they have been met with threats to their life. They have been met with charges against the state in question, which I think historically were taken into account in this process. To your first question, my understanding is I do not speak on behalf of the court. I'm the former president. But I, I do think it is clear that there have been public statements. Um, I know representatives of the Ministry of Justice are here, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But I understand that there have been some public statements that the court is indeed in the process of reviewing this procedure to do two things. First, to see whether the, the, the issue of the unnamed judge should be discarded for a more transparent approach. And secondly, whether the proceedings in some cases of high significance, when, when there is time to actually reflect over and above the papers, that it will be more adversarial by requesting the government for their views. Do you have a personal view on this? Do you think there should be reform? Yes, I have a personal view, and, and I think my view is indeed that there are good arguments uh, to attempt to take account of the criticism that was put forward. Uh, but I think we have to, and because we're gonna talk about interim measures in more detail, I think we have to disassociate the criticism leveled at this decision from a procedural perspective, which I think we have done now, uh, from the more overarching argument that has been made by some that interim measures in substance are uh, outside the authority of the court to make. Okay, I'll come on to that in a moment, but I just want to ask you one more question um, about the practicalities. Um, I mean, th this is what we in England and Wales would call an ex-party application, as I understand it. Um, it's only one side, and you can see why that, that's done. It's very urgent. We learned earlier this year, almost by chance, that the UK government applied to the court 10 days after the interim measures were granted and asked for them to be lifted. Now, the court said no. I mean, logically, there must be a way in which a party against whom an order has been made can go back to the court and ask the court to lift that order. But I didn't know this was practice. Is this standard practice? Was this a one-off? Yes, this is, this is quite common practice. Uh, the argument the government will make, uh, facts have changed. Um, uh, the treatment given to the individual in question, if the interim measure relates to providing treatment, the treatment has been given. Therefore, the government comes to the court and says, uh, from, due to the X, Y, and Z, uh, we respectfully request that uh, the measure is lifted. This happens quite frequently, yes. Okay, well, let's talk about the status of these interim measures. There was a paper published this summer by the think tank Policy Exchange. Uh, in it, Professor Richard Eakins said, the Strasbourg Court has no authority to grant interim relief, and member states of the convention have no obligation in international law to comply with Rule 39 rulings. Is he right? No, he's incorrect. Um, for many reasons. The first is uh, a banal answer to this, which is if you are asked as a lawyer what is the legal position, most lawyers, uh, and I know now in private practice, because that is what I'm doing when I'm advising clients, if I can go to a judgment and the judgment gives me the answer and the answer is black or white, I can go to the client and say, well, the legal position is X. So if I'm being asked, if the government were to come to me and ask, Robert, is it the case that interim measures indicated by the European Court of Human Rights are binding as a matter of international law? The answer is yes. The European Court of Human Rights has stated so repeatedly. So ultimately, that is the legal position. But there is the question posed is maybe different, Professor Eakins. He says, well, the courts position on this is legally untenable. 
Now, I disagree with that approach, respectfully. I think uh, it is clear from the court's case law that it is based on Article 34 of the Convention, the right to individual petition. And for those lawyers that are masters of public law, they will know that interlocutory injunctions to preserve the legal position, to prevent irreparable harm, to a legal position in which the individual party is seeking judicial review is something that is commonplace, not only in most national legal systems, but certainly under public international law. The legal basis are Article 34. This has then been by the rules of court, which the court has plenary power to adopt under Article 25 of the Convention. The court has then spelled this out in Rule 39. So the, the general proposition is this uh, does the court have the authority is, in my view, uh, quite clear. Yes. And just to explain that, um, for those unfamiliar, uh, the, the principle is that if I, as an individual, have a right of access to the court, then that right of access would be no use if the government could kick me out of the country or stop me exercising that right. And so if the convention says I have a right of access to the court, the court must find a way of preserving that right of access and allowing me to exercise it. Correct. Now, one of uh, Professor Eakin's arguments is that although a single judge has the power to strike out an application or declare it inadmissible under Article 27, there's nothing in Article 26 that allows a single judge to exercise authority over a member state. And he says, and I quote, the plenary court, the plenary court has no authority under Article 25 to make rules of court that contradict this express Limitation. In other words, you need at least three judges to rule on a case. Is that right? Again, questions that are going to be asked about uh, the position of Mr. Eakins on this is, I would probably say in most circumstances, going to be answered with a negative on my part. Um, I, I simply believe that his analysis has an incorrect methodological starting point. The interpretation of international treaties is governed by general principles of public international law, which are governed by uh, one of the most famous normative instruments in public international law, which is the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. So you cannot look at the European Convention on Human Rights, nor in fact any international treaty through the lens of a national lawyer uh, uh, adopting a very textualist approach to the convention. It may sound logical, but that's not the case. There is nothing in Article 26 or 27 of the convention which only deal with composition of uh, cases when it comes to inadmissibility or the merits, which excludes the interpretation by the court that, as you me just mentioned now, Joshua, that implicitly in Article 34, the right to individual petition to the court there is an implicit requirement and an authority under public international law which has been recognized by many other courts, such as the International Court of Justice in the famous 2001 Legrand case. And the argument made by Mr. Eakins that there is a different normative basis is again too simplistic in its terms. In other words, the argument that though the single judge under the text of the convention can only dismiss cases, therefore hence, the court cannot, under his plenary power, uh, provide to him, appointed by the president, the ability to decide interim measures is, in my view, not persuasive. Okay, one more quote from Richard Eakins, and I think you've already told me what uh, your answer is likely to be. Um, let's assume um, that the UK does not comply with interim measures in a particular case, um, and it's challenged in the court on behalf of the people who um, are disadvantaged by it. Uh, the UK goes to court and it argues that the Mamatkulov case was wrongly decided and the court is now acting beyond its powers. And Ekin says, in rejecting the Strasbourg court's actions in excess of its jurisdiction, the UK wouldn't be failing to honour its legal obligations, its international legal obligations. It would be inviting the court to honour its own legal obligations. Any, anything in that? I think I'd make two points there. The first is, uh, if you look at the United Kingdom's legal position when it comes to interim measures, it is one, uh, and again, maybe Rob Lindemann will correct me if I'm wrong, 
the, the, the position has been vis-a-vis -vis the court to abide by interim measures. And again, we come to the way in which public international law and the convention's trajectory is measured. Interim measures have, by virtue of state practice, and by a series of intergovernmental declarations in which the United Kingdom adopted favorably, emphasized that interim measures should be respected. Point number one, that's a policy issue. The second issue is when we discuss the issue of whether a, a government can ask the court to revisit its judgment, that's perfectly fine. I mean, governments can argue before the court that a settled principle should be revisited. There is nothing that's part and parcel of the rights of a party to a case. But I think one should not view it in terms of the court having, the court would be then recalibrating a position where it didn't have jurisdiction, in between, but it could be presented with novel arguments. The final point that I would make, unfortunately, Mr. Eakins, in my view, uh, completely fails to adduce arguments which I think would, in any shape or form, have the ability to change the views of the court at present. Okay, um, let's move on, um, because I don't think it's widely known that the interim measures we're talking about expired um, earlier this year. Um, we know that the government uh, defeated the migrants' claim here in London, across the road from here, um, last December. The High Court said it would be lawful to send them to Rwanda, uh, but the Home Secretary hadn't properly considered the circumstances of the individual claimants, and so their removals were quashed in January of this year. And as a result, given that the interim measures were meant to expire three weeks after the case was over, um, those interim measures uh, lapsed in February. So it's not Strasbourg that's blocking the flights at the moment, it's effectively the UK courts, is that right? I think that's a fair assessment. Um, the court, in its initial interim measure of June 2022 made clear that its interim measure would, as a matter of temporal validity, uh, expire three weeks after the final domestic decision in the case. Now, that was, of course, based on the assumption that throughout the national proceedings, the government positions would be upheld, and therefore, assuming leave to appeal were granted to the Supreme Court, then it would be three weeks after the final judgment of the Supreme Court upholding the government's policy. But what happens in the interim is, the, uh, when it came to the applicant in question, the order was quashed on 6 February 2023, which resulted in the court in a press release of 11 April 2023 stating, well, the interim measure therefore has, is moot by virtue of the fact that the national court has quashed the order in question. So, as, th as, as at presently, it is a matter of national law as interpreted by national courts that uh, the removal cannot take place. But the UK government is behaving perfectly properly. It's waiting for the outcome of the Supreme Court hearing. Um, now, just let's, let's talk about what might happen then. The Court of Appeal ruled in June that Rwanda was not a safe third country. But if the Supreme Court allows the government's appeal, that presumably won't be the end of it. Because although you've just told me the interim measures lapsed, uh, the case is still before the European Court of Human Rights at the moment. The government was asked for its observations in April. So presumably, if the government uh, tried to um, rush somebody onto a plane to Rwanda, uh, the court would grant a fresh interim measure. I think certainly, uh, assuming this would happen today, uh, considering the Court of Appeal judgment, it would be very strange that that would indeed happen. Uh, in all likelihood, the answer would be yes, uh, as things stand, because then uh, the court would be in a position that this issue was not decided at national level. I think the more interesting question is what will happen if the Supreme Court disagrees with the Court of Appeal and upholds the government's policy, then I assume their removals will take place. Um, but that, that, it's at that point that the, the Strasbourg Court would grant interim measures? Not necessarily. Um, and why is that? That is because then the, court, the Strasbourg Court would have the Supreme Court's evaluation of the Article Three arguments in play and whether um, deportation, expulsion, uh, removal to Rwanda 
was in violation of Article 3. And there you would see the debate between the majority and the minority in the Court of Appeal play out. And assuming the Supreme Court would side with Lord Burnett in, in the Court of Appeal, that would be, there will be a series of arguments which the, 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 the Strasbourg Court would have to, have, to, have to bear in mind. Now, probably, because that cannot be fully assessed at the interim stage, there might be, one might assume, to preserve the, to preserve the status quo, that the duty judge, I, I suspect in this instance, it would not only be decided by a duty judge, it might go to a chamber of seven due to the antecedents of the case, and then that would have to be played out. But it's, it's speculative at this stage to, to make a, a, an informed decision on that. Uh, just looking at this more broadly, uh, one could say that your, your unnamed former colleague was entirely right um, to uh, hold the ring uh, last summer, summer of last year, by granting the interim measures. After all, um, this is by far, uh, it's certainly not a straightforward matter, as you say. Uh, Lord Burnett was overruled in the Court of Appeal. Um, the, uh, the courts have reached quite a subtle um, issue. It was probably right, um, um, however much the UK government might not like it, uh, for the uh, Strasbourg judge to hold the ring. Well, I think the issue, there were two sort of main issues uh, I was president of the court at that stage. This was a case dealt with by a duty judge, as you rightfully mentioned. There were sort of two issues, and they're issues of fundamental principle that, that, um, that were in play. The first is um, the Supreme Court accepted uh, assurances by the government that if the policy were considered subsequently to be unlawful, that there, will be, um, there would be potential for that person to return. Now, what you always have, what it's important always to realize that in the European Court of Human Rights, a, 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 a position of principle taken vis-a-vis -vis one member state needs to be applied for all member states. Unfortunately, that is the situation. So there was an issue of principle there, which was the basis, one of the basis for uh, the decisions of the duty judge. I think one can say now, considering how the issue has played out before the national courts and the current position of the Court of Appeal, that yes, to some extent, uh, the decision seems to have been justified. Except that in some areas of the Conservative Party and within the government, um, your court is being blamed for blocking the Rwanda policy. It strikes me that the Strasbourg Court is very sensitive, particularly to countries like the United Kingdom, which, as we all know, has the best record at the Human Rights Court, uh, measured according to various um, factors. Um, the, the, the judges are particularly sensitive to, you know, avoid <sighs> ruling against the United Kingdom unless the United Kingdom does something which justifies ruling against it. Um, and you've got uh, some conservatives who are campaigning that the UK should leave the convention, and you had Robert Jenrick, the Home Office Immigration Minister, saying last month that the government would do whatever is required to tackle the problem of small boats crossing the English Channel, even if that meant pulling out of the European Convention. So this one interim measure, although it hold, held the ring and, and could be seen as justified, is giving opponents of the Human Rights Convention um, the arguments on which it seems they're going to fight the next election. I think the way you presented this brings me into territory which I'm not necessarily keen to enter. Uh, of course, the issue is, is highly politicized. My stock answer when this is brought forward is, let's look at the facts. Let's look at what is the mischief that we are dealing with here. Number one, and I've said this countless times, the United Kingdom, when it comes to the convention, whether some sectors of UK society like that or not, is a success story. I mean, ultimately now, the United Kingdom, the applications lost against the United Kingdom in the European Court of Human Rights are one of the lowest per capita in the Council of Europe. The judgments rendered, violation judgments delivered against the United Kingdom are exceedingly rare. Uh, I just want to mention for those that were watching the news, the judgment this morning against the United Kingdom finding a violation is, is simply a, a, a repeat of another case, which was the Big Brother Watch case. So there's nothing novel there. Um, the national courts have 
on the basis of the Human Rights Act, adopted an approach which is, in my view, and here I think it's important to, 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 to stress this, it is not, in my view, an, an overly deferential, an overly protective approach to human rights. It is actually an approach which strikes the right balance between individual rights and the public interest. And this delicate, subtle balance we see in the reasoning of the, the, the national courts, when these judgments come to Strasbourg, there is simply nothing left to do in the case. Because remember, the, the convention is based on the principle of subsidiarity. It is based on the national systems protecting human rights. And in case after case, and I've decided many UK cases, when the case comes to us, it is simply, and these are cases often where there are allegations of serious violations of human rights, but actually the work has been done at national level and there is nothing else left to do in Strasbourg. So the issue is, I, I repeatedly say, in my view, the issue is not that there, is, there are issues of the legal machinery that are problematic. It is not a question, in my view, of the national courts going further than Strasbourg. And I want to mention here a very important recent calibration of the UK Supreme Court on that issue, which was an issue which was open in the case law of the UK Supreme Court, but in a relatively recent judgment after uh, the presidency of Robert Reed started, there is now a clear position taken that the UK Supreme Court will not in general go further than the Strasbourg Court. So ultimately, all of the reasons for the, the politics are politics rather than issues of mischief in the law or, or in my view, uh, an exaggerated view of the importance of human rights at national level. Now, whether the politicians are right or wrong, that's for others to talk about. Okay, well, let me ask you a legal question, but it's not uh, unconnected with what I've just been asking you about. Uh, we know that no country has been allowed to join the Council of Europe without first signing up to the Human Rights Convention. If the United Kingdom were to withdraw from the Human Rights Convention, would it have to leave the Council of Europe? My legal view on that question is yes. Uh, the que but I need to make some caveats here. I need to explain that this is not a yes or no answer. So the statute of the Council of Europe is a statute which was adopted on May 5th 1949, so it precedes the convention. There is nothing in the statute of the Council of Europe which refers directly to the European Court of Human Rights or the European Convention on Human Rights, which was adopted a year later. But there are two provisions which are central. Article 3, which states that every member state of the Council of Europe must respect the rule of law and the principles governing the protection of human rights which for the realization of the aims which are spelled out in section one of the statute and one of those provisions in subsection b is that the protection of human rights which is implemented by the organs of the council of europe shall be respected now so on one view which i think is the predominant view if a member state denounces the convention it will not fulfill the criteria for membership of the Council of Europe under section one and three of the statute of the Council of Europe. The problem, and now the caveat, the way in which this would occur, let's imagine for the sake of argument this would occur, the United Kingdom would denounce, would withdraw from the convention under article 58 of the convention. It would state publicly that it would want to remain in the Council of Europe. That would have to then engender a process by the other member states. So the actual decision to then, let's say, expel the United Kingdom would, would be a political decision in the Committee of Ministers. And that's the caveat. Politics is politics. Uh, no member state, especially the Eastern European states, which became member states of the Council of Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, they were, they were obliged 
to become member states of the Council of Europe. So it would be a strange course of events that a state could then, and a founding member state of the Council of Europe, remember the UK is, is the bulwark of the convention. It's Churchill's vision, it's uh, you know, Maxwell Fife's drafting, it's, it's really a UK piece, uh, a normative piece of legislation. It, it would be strange that in that context, there would be a, a discrepancy between the treaty, but politics are politics. The, uh, my legal view is you cannot be a member state of the Council of Europe if you denounce the convention. And that would be not what the UK government would want. Uh, after all, Alex Chalk, the Justice Secretary, was in Riga yesterday, a Council of Europe Justice Ministers meeting to discuss uh, help for Ukraine. Um, and uh, leaving the Council of Europe would have all sorts of effects. Northern Ireland, relations with the EU, trade within Europe. Yes, indeed, from what I understand, and I'm going to be careful to talk about the Belfast Agreement and other sort of implications for national law, but it is clear, I think, the arguments that I have uh, seen, which relate to the nexus between uh, ECHR membership and the, and the Good Friday Agreement, are very persuasive. Uh, also, uh, and I want to mention one element here, which is, you know, why is this debate on the human rights uh, position of the UK government not only important for the protection of human rights, but it's also important for the overall economic uh, and stability and reputation of the United Kingdom. Many of our, our clients in this field, who are often multinational companies, actually have a stake in this debate. Because for them, a situation in which a member state, a founding member state of the Council of Europe, um, actively begins a process of withdrawal from one of the founding or preeminent uh, treaty-based regimes in Europe would also be considered to some extent an, a, a, a negative evaluation of the rule of law orientation of the country in question. And we all know that you know, trade and business and our economies are built on trust and certainty. So that, I think, is, 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 the, it is one of the reasons why one sees when business leaders are talking about, you know, for example, the discussion on Dominique Raab's Bill of Rights bill, there was uh, quite a negative reaction to uh, the willingness to call into question these settled principles. So this is, a, this is a much larger debate, I think, and a larger issue than merely focusing on uh, uh, the human rights stricto sensu. But it would allow the UK to send the asylum seekers back, or would it? Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't allow the, the United Kingdom to proceed with um, removals in all circumstances for migrants who entered illegally such that it would be in conformity with international law. Uh, well, if the convention does not apply, let's put the convention then aside, we have to realize that the European Court of Human Rights interpretation of Article 3, which is the prohibition on torture and other Ill, inhuman or degrading treatment, is not out of thin air. I mean, this is, this is part of a normative structure of international law which has its genesis in other international instruments like the 1951 Refugee Convention, uh, Article 33 of that convention, as well as uh, the UN Torture Convention and other international provisions. So my answer would be, you know, no, you, there would still potentially be a violation of other international law obligations, but there wouldn't, unless the individual in question would potentially go to the UN Human Rights Committee, which of course interprets and applies the ICCPR, which is the 1966 UN Convention on Civil and Political Rights, which has the same protections in place. So, you know, the European Convention on Human Rights is just one repository, but it has a very strong enforcement mechanism, which is the court. Let's move to domestic law and the Illegal Migration Act 2023. Uh, which has been passed by Parliament, but most of it has not yet been brought into force. I'm going to read you a little bit from Section 1, which is described as an introduction. It tells us 
why the Act was passed. That's still quite unusual um, in this country. I'm not sure how the courts will interpret their duty to give effects to its purpose, but it's quite handy for us today because it uh, summarises what the Act does. The purpose of this Act is to prevent and deter unlawful migration, in particular migration by unsafe and illegal routes, by requiring the removal from the United Kingdom of certain persons who enter or arrive in the United Kingdom in breach of immigration control. And to advance that purpose, this Act places a duty on the Secretary of State to make arrangements uh, for removal, provides protection claims and certain human rights, uh, provides for protection claims and certain human rights claims made by persons who meet the conditions for removal to be inadmissible, provides for their detention, um, provides for them to be um, uh, who meet, uh, to be given leave to enter or remain in the United Kingdom, persons who meet the conditions for removal, uh, it prevents them from being given leave to enter or remain, uh, provides a procedure under which they can challenge it um, by means of what's called a suspensive claim, which depends on showing you face a real imminent or foreseeable risk of death, persecution and so on, and has the effect that all other legal challenges to the removal of people under the Act do not suspend the duty to make arrangements um, for uh, their removal. And one other point to make, the duty in Section 3 of the Human Rights Act to read down legislation compatibly with the Human Rights Convention does not apply to the Illegal Migration Act. Now, what do you make of the Illegal Migration Act generally? I think my answer to that has, has to start off with potentially a surprising uh, starting point, which is I don't think it is fair to underestimate the importance of the issue of migration generally as an issue of concern, uh, requiring considered debate, in particular in the multilateral arena. Um, I have seen in my job as a judge at the European Court of Human Rights, what can possibly happen when states do not have um, considered policies of attempting to integrate uh, migrants, providing them opportunities, education, um, in other words, the ability to, to prosper in their countries. This creates social uh, disruption. It can create a, a lot of problems. So we shouldn't underestimate, and, and I fully understand, that this issue needs to be dealt with in the legislative fora. But that's a separate question from the legal question of what are the rules that apply in, under international law which limit the policy options of governments. My focus is on the latter. I'm not a politician. I may have my views on the policy issues. But I think the issue of migration has to be dealt with in the right arena. And it is clear that many member states, not just the United Kingdom, but many member states are concerned with the lack of flexibility in the norms under public international law, which require that a person within the territorial jurisdiction of a state, which has an arguable claim of being an asylum seeker, a proper asylum seeker, must have their case examined to assess whether there is a substantial risk of that person, if removed, is subjected to harm. The idea that the simple arrival of a person with such an arguable claim, illegally, is the basis for legislation which strips that person of, protective, of a protective human rights claim, is at odds with the underlying fundamental basis of international asylum law. Why? Because a true asylum seeker will usually be exactly in a position to not be able to enter legally. So it's the whole ethos, the whole crux of the issue in question. So the issue has to be dealt with then at the multilateral international level in states 
going through a discussion on whether the international law rules should somehow be altered. That is the discussion that needs to be had. But under the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, there is a fundamental principle, which is as follows. A state cannot refer to rules of national law to justify a violation of its international law obligations. And you're saying... And I think, and I think there, Joshua, there will be, and I think you do not have to be an expert to see that the United Kingdom government and parliament, and I know that is a big statement to make, but by adopting the illegal migration bill, there is a risk, a real risk, of decisions taken on the basis of that act not to be reconcilable with the norms that I just discussed. What you're saying, if I can lead you, is that the act does not comply with international law, that decisions taken under the act uh, would be a breach of the UK's international obligations. You've mentioned the Refugee Convention uh, and other uh, international obligations. You've mentioned Article 3, nobody shall be subjected to torture or inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. There was the Chahal case in 1996. It's obviously not unlawful as a matter of domestic law for Parliament to pass this legislation, but giving effect to it would put the UK in breach of international law. You know, uh, the journalist asks the question and wants a yes or no answer. I'm not going to give a yes or no answer. My answer is, it, it, it is clear the way the legislation is framed, and as I've stated before, I want to be cautious when we are dealing with pure national law. But the way I understand the illegal migration bill, there are elements to that legislation which, if applied in light of the, 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 under, the plain understanding of some of the provisions, they may run counter to... And I think, why does the illegal migration bill disapply Section 3 of the Human Rights Act? Why does it not allow the systemic interpretation of national law with the convention? And that is, of course, because the legislator understands, and it may actually be the intention, that an irreconcilable conflict leads to a result which is potentially at odds with what transpires from the convention. The same section 55, when it comes to, you may want to deal with that later, section 55, which allows the minister, the minister may uh, uh, not follow an interim measure. Uh, in, in other words, there may be a situation going through the facts that an interim measure, which is unequivocally binding under the convention and international law, will not be respected at national level. Now that, of course, will and can create tensions which are irreconcilable. It would be okay under national law, but again, it would be a breach of the convention, it would be a breach of international law. I think there's still one interesting open question when it comes to pure national law, which the national courts will have to grapple with, and I know I'm becoming very technical now for those of you that, that are not familiar with the Human Rights Act. Section 6, paragraph 1 of the Human Rights Act makes clear that a public authority may not act incompatibly with the Convention. It's a clear statement. That provision is not disapplied in the Illegal Migration Bill. So what the national courts will have to determine, and I don't have an answer to that, they will have to determine when the minister is in the act of examining uh, an interim measure under Section 55, what is the relationship between Section 6, Paragraph 1 of the Human Rights Act, the prohibition for a public authority to act incompatibly with the Convention, and the provision of Section 55? And as we know, having been a judge for many years, judges can be very creative, and they can find ways to seek to evade, avoid um, an irreconcilable normative conflict. So we'll see how that plays out. Okay, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. Obviously, if somebody was sent to Rwanda tomorrow as part of the government scheme, whilst the Court of Appeals decision prevails, that would be unlawful because the Court of Appeal have held it's not a safe country. Could you explain, if the Supreme Court were to conclude 
that it was, it, Rwanda, was a safe country and the scheme was a proper scheme for determining whether asylum was to be granted or not. What would be the breach of the Human Rights Act, not sorry, the Human Rights Convention in those circumstances? As to the compatibility of the scheme with Article 3 of the Convention, which it would perform under the Human Rights Act, would be subject to review by the European Court of Human Rights. And within the context of Article 3, which is an absolute prohibition, there is limited scope for the application of the margin of appreciation, with one caveat. There may be, and the way I understand the disagreement between the majority of two and Lord Burnett in the Court of Appeal, it was really a disagreement on facts, to what extent the government had made out its case. My sense is, is if, if that is, let's assume for the sake of argument that in the Supreme Court that simply flips and there is a majority in the Supreme Court which views the facts on the ground like the former Lord Chief Justice. I, I think that would be for the European Court of Human Rights a very weighty issue uh, in favor of the government. It would not, however, foreclose a finding of a violation because historically the court has taken the view that when it comes to Article 3, it does apply quite strict scrutiny to the assessment due to the nature of the right in question. But ultimately, to answer your question, it could result in simply the, the, the European Court of Human Rights disagreeing with the Supreme Court on the issues in play under Article 3. Uh, just pass the microphone back to yeah. Lord Faulkner, would you? I wasn't... Dis I, I wasn't... I completely understand... Is that working? Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, I, I wasn't focusing on who might be right and who might be wrong, but I was interested in... You, you, you and I tend to share this view, launched into a pretty scathing attack on the Illegal Migration Act. If, at the end of the day, the Rwanda scheme is lawful, i.e. compliant with the Human Rights Convention, what's unlawful about, for example, detaining people for 28 days whilst you're waiting to send them to Rwanda for a legitimate process of considering their claims? Uh, we are now, we're now entering into the, the issue of, for example, the, the detention of migrants for the purposes of removal is not an Article 3 issue, it's actually an Article 5 issue. So we're into a, a different, you know, different type of case law. So it would be a separate question there that we'd have to look to. But I think ultimately to answer your question, uh, we will have to wait for the Supreme Court. We will have to see to what extent also for the purposes of the illegal migration bill, which, which is not, as I understand, and, and those that are more familiar with the pleadings in the Supreme Court case are not being dealt with in the Rwanda case, not directly. It's, it's not an illegal migration bill case. It's about uh, the Article 3 evaluation of whether Rwanda is a safe third country. Uh, so I think we just need to, to see what the judgment says. Uh, and of course, if the judgment upholds the Court of Appeal decision, then of course we are in a situation where uh, I can imagine things will have to be uh, uh, reviewed at national level. Okay, there's a question just behind you, the gentleman here. I would encourage questioners to give their names, but you don't have to, so over to you, sir. Uh, I'm Simon Kahn. Um, I always find it a little frustrating when people invoke Churchill and Maxwell Fife as part of the reason for saying that it would be disappointing if the UK left uh, the convention. Uh, and that's the reason I find it frustrating is that I don't think we really know what Winston Churchill would have made of current decisions. I mean, he wasn't known to be a, a, a gay rights campaigner. Um, so the question that I would really like to get, get, a, get my head around, uh, or the answer I'd like to get my head around, is, is this. The court has demonstrated um, that it has a very uh, a substantial ability to kind of make it up as it goes along. Good arguments. I'm not, I'm not challenging 
in, in this question, I'm not challenging the logic of it, but it, the, 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 the court has extended its rights. It's, it's, it's come up with the living instrument doctrine, it's come up with interim, um, interim orders and so forth. Uh, in this country, we're used to the idea that if Parliament doesn't like something that a judge has done, Parliament can change the law going forward. And so I suppose my question is, what do you say to people who are used to this country's type of legal process, where there's, there's always the possibility of a democratically elected politicians correcting the law or changing the law going forwards? Um, okay. Yeah, so, so how do, the point is there's no parliament that can overrule the decisions of the Human Rights Court. My answer to that is twofold. The first is, it's a bit of a technical answer, but I'm going to give it anyways. And that is, the Human Rights Act is, is actually quite a fantastic piece of legislation. Uh, the way it's drafted and the way it navigates and balances the interest at stake, the constitutional interest at stake, because it has a mechanism which proceeds on the basis that Parliament is sovereign, but it gives the courts the, the ability to declare uh, legislation in, in, incompatible with the convention and sort of puts it back into uh, the parliamentary domain. Because ultimately, the decision whether or not to comply with an international treaty in a dualistic state like the UK, which is the same in my country, will ultimately always be a political decision. So I think that the way the Human Rights Act is framed is very much a, a sensible approach to that. My second is a more policy-based uh, uh, policy answer, and it is this. When, uh, uh, when a person in the UK who believes in parliamentary sovereignty and, and is, is you know, impressed by the system and finds that, you know, exceptions to that system should, should be met with scrutiny, I would say take the long view. Take the view that look at the overarching trajectory of what the convention is and has done for, for, for British life. If you do that seriously, and if you do that earnestly and honestly, and stop viewing it through political slogans, you will actually see that the European Convention on Human Rights has done many beautiful things for the United Kingdom. Now, there may be some things you don't like, but remember, these are rights that you have. And you may be in a position at some point where government is overstepping and government is maybe going to extremes which you don't like. You may have a government which no longer is willing to respect your rights. And you will want in that instance, hopefully it will never happen, but you will want some protections. You will want to be in a position where you don't have to rely on a political majority for the prosperity in your life. That is the answer I usually give. And if people are open-minded and take that position, I'm not saying it's going to persuade everyone, but it is, I think, the underlying ethos of the convention and the reason why in most European states today, even in states where you know, things are often very difficult, we do not see the sustained existential debate on leaving the convention like we see in the United Kingdom. Because those populations have gone through strife and they've gone through terrible times where they would not want again to have to rely on pure politics to dictate the trajectory of their lives. Okay, thank you. Um, another question, uh, lady over here, please. Um. Thank you for um, your insights. It's been fascinating. I'm Rashman Sagu, Chatham House. I just wondered, Robert, if you could please, um, I guess, reflect on, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on the UK's legal soft power um, within the Council of Europe and the Strasbourg court system, uh, the Council of Europe system and within the courts, including the perception of the UK legal profession, whether they're um, behind the scenes in the, in, the, in the clerk's offices or whether they're you know, judges, legal, lawyers before that 
that have come before you. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess just your perceptions of, uh, you mentioned earlier, and Joshua mentioned, I think about the low numbers of cases that the UK has had, and, or the low rates of uh, findings against the UK. But I just wondered if you could give us some behind the, se behind the scenes um, insights. The influence of the United Kingdom on the life of the Convention, the Council of Europe, and the European Court of Human Rights is immense, simply immense. Uh, I fully take the point just mentioned that referring to the founders like Maxwell Fife would not necessarily justify all of the positions taken by the court in individual cases, fine. But when it comes to the overall life of the Convention and the court and the Council of Europe, the United Kingdom has always been fundamental. It's as simple as that. That is why this, the continued debate about the potential exit of the United Kingdom, in my view, presents almost an existential question. Because we only have, you know, we only have two European states. I put aside the Vatican City for the moment, but we have Russia and Belarus that are not member states of the Council of Europe. If a state like the United Kingdom, which has immense soft power in the Council of Europe, and I would like to see the United Kingdom even have a stronger position on many of these issues for the furtherance of human rights, for the protection of human rights, especially now in the times we live in, where the convention, in my view, has become more important than ever. The convention was not conceived for pure, you know, good times and peacetime. It was perceived to be a a, a, a normative construct of protections exactly when we see the rise of authoritarianism and populism. The United Kingdom should be leading the way in protecting the convention, if you want my opinion on that. So I think hopefully things will dissipate. Uh, we will see a realization that you take the long view, let's take the long view, let's look at this in an overarching historical uh, manner and not just day to day. And then I, think, uh, th then I think the answer may be different. Okay, we have room for just about one or two more questions. Um, I just want to see, that I can see two hands there. Anybody else? Uh, there's some very distinguished people in the audience. But okay, you had the question first, the microphone will come to you, and then the gentleman in front but, of but you. But you guys are very distinguished as well, so no worries. <laughs> I think so. Hi, my name's Cameron. I have a question for both Robert, and I'm very interested in your view, Joshua, on this, on this point, which is, the parliamentary spy scandal over the last few days and the media approach to it and uh, privacy. Um, as I'm sure most people know that a few months uh, earlier this year, a, uh, I think it was two suspected spies were arrested uh, working in parliament. Um, this was uncovered over the weekend by the Times, uh, who published the name. Many other broadcasters and newspapers haven't published the name, including the BBC and they're citing uh, uh, the right to privacy, they're citing uh, the Bloomberg case, they're citing the Cliff, uh, Cliff Richard and previous um, European Strasbourg cases that have influenced the British courts. And I'm very interested in, in understanding what you, your views on whether the balance between privacy and freedom of the press is being correctly struck, particularly because many of these uh, journalists, it's, it's, you can find the names very easily if you, if you want to, and it's fully published abroad. And uh, similar okay. point with the Hugh Edwards allegations. Okay, so, so the question is really balancing Article 8 against Article 10, and how that's been interpreted here in the domestic courts of the United Kingdom, and the rather curious idea that this guy can be named and photographed and written about in the Times, uh, but is not being named elsewhere. Um, it, this may be a question about domestic law and where we've got to on privacy, in which case you're entitled to say nothing to do with it. Uh, but presumably, uh, and I won't give my own view, this is all about the court, the constant battle between trying to um, uh, find the right balance between freedom of expression and right to respect for a person's private and family life. Yes, I, I'm not going to comment on, I, I'm not familiar enough with, with the, the facts that you mentioned. Just a general point here, which, which is the way in which the case law has developed over the last decade is there is more flexibility for member states to retain 
their proper visions of the balance between the right to privacy and, the free and freedom of expression because these visions are often radically different between member states. Look at, for example, the difference between France and, and Germany, for example. So any position taken on this by a national court, which is well-reasoned on the facts, which there is an actual balance that take place, uh, now the position in Strasbourg that, as the court has said, it will require strong reasons for the court to review that finding. I, I don't have another answer for okay. you on the facts. That's fine. And the gentleman here, last question. Hello, good evening. Um, Fergus Rich, uh, um, un unsignificant person. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no. But, but super fan. Um, you get the last I, question. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm really interested in the praxis uh, of the potential UK exit from the, the convention and the, the watertight uh, ironclad argument that's been put to me is that this would be uh, incompatible with obligations under the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Accord, and Article 1 of the Convention, which means you can't pick and choose uh, the territories that you apply it to. Is that argument as, as watertight and valid as I might hope, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to think yes, but again, as, as I, I wanted... I always want to be careful with taking a very strong position on on national law. Um, Charlie Falconer is probably a lot better to ask on this, but my sense of these arguments is they're quite persuasive and quite strong. Certainly, the part which relates to the the non applicability of reservations which are based on the convention, are ironclad. That, they're absolutely correct. The only leftover is you know, the idea that there would be other norms of human rights which would still remain valid under national law. Therefore, we shouldn't view the Good Friday Agreement solely through the prism of the convention, but ultimately I think that is, uh, that is a weak argument because I think ultimately those that drafted and perceived of the fundamental protections in Northern Ireland were envisaging the continued membership under the convention as being the fundamental premise uh, within the agreement. Well, that is all we have time for. All that's left for me to do is to thank Robert Spano and Gibson Dunn for a fascinating evening. Thank you very much. <laughs>